Hello and welcome to the Bath Student Opinion. My name is Joel and I'm accompanied once again by my good friend Tom. Good evening. And this evening we are speaking to Elam Fardad, CEO of Migrant Leaders. But before we do, let's just outline what we have achieved so far. We have first of all spoken to Finley and Charlie. They have two very different perspectives on the tuition fee system with some similarities. But what we did fundamentally was try and understand their perspective. And uh, who better to try and solve these problems than a Member of Parliament, Vera Hobhouse, the uh, MP for Bath. Uh, Vera went alongside a lot more of Charlie's talking points, how tuition fees are um, a good system or at least a necessary system, one where it ensures fairness for people who want to go to university but ensures that those who do not go to university do not take up the tax burden. And there are many other ways in which we can solve problems of social mobility highlighted by Finlay uh, that don't involve pure university measures. It might be more early as education, getting people into education and, uh, and into proper, good, skilled employment, perhaps through different means. Exactly. And the way in which we will speak to Elam tonight was very much similar to the way in which we did with Vera, which is putting the points put forward by Finley and Charlie and seeing her response and trying to look for some meaningful solutions. Good morning, Elam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a bit about yourself and Migrant Leaders. Thank you, Joel. Um, I am really, really pleased to be here today. So thank you for inviting me both. And um, a bit about myself. I'm in my 40s, married with two uh, children, and I've had a wonderful career, really, as a finance director for 23 years in big companies, GE, News Corp and Ernest & Young. Um, That's the summary of the last 25 years, but life hasn't always been like this. Um, When I was 18, um, I was just a young migrant growing up in Birmingham, and I had moved from Iran to the UK at the age of 13, and um, we faced some of the typical challenges that migrant families face. Um, Our family broke up, uh, I ended up with visa problems and um, financial problems, and my mom and a young brother to look after. So by the time I was 18, I only knew one thing for sure, that the way I was going to get myself out of that situation was going to be through education. I was good academically. So um, I decided I would, of course, go to university. That was going to be my social mobility tool. Uh, and um, But I had a problem because um, being a migrant, having been in the UK only for a few years, I would have been counted as a foreigner student. Um, so I decided that I would camp outside Birmingham City Council offices for three days in a row until I can, quite rightly, I felt, convince someone that I'm a Brummy. I knew I'm a Brummy. I really felt like a Brummy. I still do. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that I should count me as a home student. And after three days of camping outside Birmingham City Council offices, they kindly did. So off I went to university. And really, it was because of their kindness and that single opportunity that I got my first financial controller job in GE a few years later. Because that put me on a right trajectory. And that's the power of early interventions with young people. Uh, Single decisions, single interventions, single pieces of support and kindness changes the trajectory of their lives. And and is is this something that you yourself learnt and then have applied that to migrant leaders as a charity? 
Absolutely. It's all about changing trajectories early on. Um, so I went on to be an, a finance director for 23 years, but it didn't feel enough. And as luck would have it, um, when I was feeling that way, one day the Parker Review landed in my inbox and the Parker Review looked at the ethnic diversity of UK corporates. And I read it at that time for two or three nights and I felt quite angry. That's the only way I can describe it. Because when I looked at the data deeply, I realized that actually 1.3% of the citizens of color who've become directors, including non-execs uh, in FTSE 100, only 1.3% are migrants and almost all of them were privately educated. So actually my kind of migrant who went to comprehensive schools as the data suggests, should and never will make it to directorships in the FTSE 100. That is really unacceptable. But also I felt angry for the British economy. We know there's a shortage of STEM skills. We know that there's a shortage of tech skills. We know our economy can grow much more if everyone is included and can fulfill their potential. So, so where we are today with migrant leaders um, is we've got 925 senior mentors from 95 big companies and organizations. And we've got fantastic corporate partnerships with Anglo-American, Smith & Nephew, Cantor, um, ABB, and many others, um, where we design and deliver work experiences, workshops and training and connections for um, young people. I spoke to one of your mentees over the summer day and your charity sponsored him being able to go to Manchester uh, Uni and paying the international fees. I thought that was just such an, um, such an amazing opportunity. So mm -hmm. from your experience of helping so many disadvantaged young people, how important do you see universities in helping their social mobility? Um, traditionally, and I think quite rightly, particularly for technical professions such as engineering, medicine and some other technical professions, universities are quite rightly the engines of social mobility. And of course, recently there have been questions around how good have universities been in delivering on that social mobility promise. Recent reports have said that when you look at graduate salaries, disadvantaged graduates are earning half the starting salary compared to more, their more privileged peers. And that's at the beginning of their lives. To me, there's no other explanation for that difference apart from connections. And that's not fair, is it? So we're doing something about that through migrant leaders. When we look at top tier universities where some of the most promising employers, you know, investment banks, top tier management consultancies, strong brands in industry, so they hire from some of the top five, top 10 um, Russell Group universities. And um, so how good have those universities been in getting disadvantaged backgrounds to participate in their universities? Um, data suggests not very good. And we, and we see with a university such as Bath, it has a 1% admission rate of students who were once on free school meals at secondary school. And this was actually an article, article that you yourself shared by the um, IFS. And what, what would you say to a university that has those sort of admission rates? Is it, is it the problem specifically with the university themselves or, or is it elsewhere? I would say to them that it might appear that the system is rigged and that this is a conspiracy. 
I don't believe it is. And that they, as universities, are not the problem. They are part of the solution. So it's a positive message that I would want to give them. They should continue to do their work. I know for a fact that many of the top universities have excellent outreach programs. So I would say do more of that, continue that and do more of it deeper. Then the question becomes, should they actively recruit disadvantaged backgrounds? actively give additional support and include disadvantaged backgrounds deliberately, I believe they should. So what do you say are the biggest barriers for these young people to get to university? So we, we spoke to um, two students with two very different experiences of how they themselves got to university and how they perceive the tuition fee system and then the wider university as a whole. In terms of those barriers, what, what would you say they are? Is it, is it, is it money? Is it culture? Obviously, it's, it, it's very complex, but for you, what, what, what comes out on top? So let's set aside the case of migrant students who um, don't have any funding whatsoever to go to university. If we look at the typical British student from a working class and disadvantaged background, I go around the country speaking to many of them. I grew up with many of them. And I know for for certain that if I had to take on student loans in order to go to university, I wouldn't have done that. Because those amounts of money seem gigantic Psychologically, it's scary to take on those student loans to go to university with no promise of decent jobs at the end. The reality is there is no promise of excellent jobs at the end of it, um, unless they do certain courses that are applicable to professional jobs, unless they get top internships while they're at university, unless they make connections while they're at school and they're at university, which is exactly what our Migrant Leaders Program does. Um, And in many cases, to go to top universities, they have to leave their local communities where multiple generations have lived. So part of the barrier is financial, part of it is psychological, part of it is the lack of support in writing personal statements and applications to top universities. And part of it is knowing their own value. They don't often have good decision support and guidance, which is, again, through our mentoring program within Migrant Leaders, we are trying to address that. That's interestingly consistent with what both Charlie, um, a a student in which we spoke to, and uh, Vera Hophouse, the MP for Bath. So coming back to the rather poor admission rates of disadvantaged students who come to university, are there repercussions of this? Is this dangerous? It's hugely dangerous because if employers, particularly um, investment banks, uh, management consultancies, top industry brands, recruit from only Russell Group universities or top five universities, the numbers speak for themselves. How are they going to recruit disadvantaged backgrounds if they're not in those universities? The other issue is personal stories. Imagine this girl who, and we've got many such girls and boys who are really gifted analytically. They would be a gift to investment banks. They would be a gift to engineering companies like Rolls-Royce. And the only way they can use those strengths, their natural strengths, is to go to the right university, do the right course and get into the right companies. And if there are such humongous barriers, 
they will never use their natural strengths. And I think that's a miserable life to have capabilities that you never get to use during your life. That's, that's a miserable life to me. And at the end of the day, we are all striving to be happy, right? What a great first half of that interview there. And first of all, thank you so much, uh, Elam, for coming on. It was a real privilege. First of all, let's just outline what she said. It really was fundamentally an economic argument, purely in economic growth reasons. You see these disadvantaged young people as sort of unutilised human capital. And then when you look at the broader arguments made by, made by Finlay, I thought what was most poignant was the fact that Ellen herself said, no, I would not take out tuition fees. Because even just on a psychological level, even though it is a loan, and it's something that you may not even have to pay back after 30 years, that in itself, psychologically, is incredibly incredibly big in uh, disadvantaged young people's minds. So, yeah, it, it was just a really interesting interview because there was just parallels found between all of our all of our interviews. Yes, and it was it was fascinating to hear that interview after we'd interviewed uh, Vera as well because, of course, uh, last week uh, we heard Vera talk about how, uh, you know, apprenticeships, not putting university so much on pedestal, a bit like what Charlie was saying, how there are actually some um, fields in which a university degree might not be quite so relevant, how we can get people into, uh, you know, skilled work and employment, not just through the university system. We don't have to just make that the push. And, you know, that also somewhat tied into the argument for tuition fees, going that we don't need this push. But Elam is going a lot more into the systemic approach to actually tackling that problem. It's not looking at apprenticeships in early years in a vacuum. Uh, she's looking at the entire thing on a, on a macro level. She's going, right, so the problems are early years, people aren't really you know, getting motivated into doing it. She says that you know, with the tuition fees, she wouldn't have done it herself if she looked back. At the same time, university doesn't need to be quite so important as it is, obviously, for certain subjects, sure, but apprenticeships are vital. And, and the funny thing is, it was almost as if she had listened to every single one of our interviews, <laughs> which we had done before, because even like word for word, she, she referenced the importance, the significance of really good career advice, actually outlining on paper the potential career paths that people have. The fact that things are a possibility. University education is a possibility if they want to pursue it. But then alongside that, cultural as well, in terms of leaving the family home. And the, the thing that I'd like to most highlight is, I know you said, Joel, that it was not so much for an emotional argument, and I agree, it was very much an analytical mm. um, economic argument. But at the same time, um, I like how that ties into how economics doesn't have to be cold, because she saw how it might feel like a rigged system, but it's not. When the universities don't like administer or uh, let in so many people from disadvantaged backgrounds, a lot of the time that's not because of conscious decision. In fact, it almost certainly isn't. And if it was, that would also be illegal. Um, but it, it's about going how the system is currently set up in a very flawed manner. And actually, it would do us all so much better if we actually looked into reforming it. We didn't just look at it in terms of, of like a, a cost thing. And even when you do look at it in terms of like a, a cost-benefit analysis, to put that extra effort in to really analyse it and restructure would do our country, our economy, and actually, as a result, the welfare of our people so much more. 
And I think for people like Finley, with the concerns, very valid concerns, if you yourself feel like the system is fundamentally against you, and Ellen really points out that that is a very real and a very valid feeling, it isn't necessarily the case. But of course, there are solutions to be found. So in the first half of the interview, we're looking at the problems. I spoke to her about what is going on. What are the levels of admission rates for disadvantaged young people? And why is that a problem? And how can we improve it? From this point onwards, I will be going into uh, Elam's ideas about where the problems really are, where do they lie, where are the cracks and where are people falling into them. So we'll go on to that second half of the interview now. So we know what the barriers are. Where are they falling through the cracks? Where is it not happening? What intervention needs to happen, in your opinion? If we look at migrants, for example, first generation migrants have humongous barriers in terms of not having funding to go to university, having visa problems, often having parents who are not educated and they are working three shifts in order to put food on the table as first generation migrant families. Then you look at the second generation, and actually there was an IFS report recently as part of the Dayton Review, which showed that even in the second generation of migrant families, these migrant children have double the rate of university degrees in the UK when compared to the white majority. More than 50% of them have university degrees compared to 26% for the white majority. And yet, when you compare the same two groups, they are 7% behind in employment rates. The same highly educated ones are 7% behind in employment rates and around 10% behind in attaining managerial positions and progression. So something is very, very wrong and all that education is getting wasted. That is important to understand because it tells us a little bit about the root causes and the solutions then. To me, the root causes are big part of it is that those migrant families who've come to the UK work very, very, very hard to settle and earn a reasonable life for their children so that the next generation can do better, even though they are very hard working and some of them go on to start small businesses, but they lack connections into big corporates. They wouldn't necessarily know what a corporate career looks like. So they can't advise their children in that regard, at least. And their circle of friends and communities are the same. So there's a lack of connections and insights. And then there is the question of while they're in education, they've got to get the work experiences to make up their minds, which environments they'll prosper in. And then they've got to get the internships to make connections and build deep relationships that lands them the graduate jobs later. We know from anecdotal stories and experiences that many of the privileged backgrounds, that's how they landed their jobs. Uh, we've got to, in some ways, try and emulate that and give the same to the disadvantaged backgrounds so that we can level the playing field. So you would say probably a great place to start, at least at the university level, would be to ensure that everyone who has gotten to that institution, especially with, with positive incentives to disadvantaged people to go to university, it would be where there also needs to be a greater focus, not just on the academic side, but also on the work experience, getting people into work, having people, uh, something on their CV, a good structured way to get into these these experiences absolutely and i think in terms of internships um there's some really good work being done by multiple businesses and um and charities 
But my guidance on that would be a lot of those internships tend to be short two, three day internships, which are delivered to hundreds and hundreds of the students at the same time. They don't get much face time with individual executives and contacts within those companies. And to me, an internship is partly about learning but a big part of it is about making an impression and making a connection and relationship so that when you do apply for the graduate job, they remember you. We at Migrant Leaders design our internships with that in mind. It's it's very interesting because we, we've been trying to find, you know, where this intervention is needed. But when we spoke to Charlie and when we spoke to uh, most notably to Vera Hophouse, where there is a problem, they were saying was not actually at university. Vera and Charlie were both saying, why do we need such a focus on university? Because perhaps there is more of a concern about degrees uh, losing their value or, you know, they were saying that the financial aspect with the student loans, because it's, it's fundamentally a graduate tax. It's only called the tuition fee system because of the international student aspect. They said that rather than if we say took away tuition fees or restructured the payment program, grants should be brought back. At the same time, the money that would have gone into, say, hypothetically, if you were to fund universities through general taxation, that money should not go to universities. That's not where the problem is, they said. If we put money into early years education in primary schools, secondary schools, getting people those skills for life, that would be a more effective intervention into the, the lack of social mobility in this country. So for you, why is it universities that is where the focus should be? Or do you believe perhaps there is a focus that should be put more on early years? Where is that balance and where would you strike it and why? I'm glad that these discussions are being held um, because in my view, in the last couple of decades, the approach to education has been too broad brush. For example, in the 90s, there was a push for as high a percentage as possible to go to university. Obviously, that's an important indicator in an economy and universities are a social mobility engine, but really a university degree, in my view, benefits technical fields. There are only certain fields that would really gain value by going to university. Others would be equally well-placed, if not more, to do apprenticeships. And I know EY and many others have now got onto that realization and are offering excellent quality apprenticeships. Um, so university is not for everybody. Therefore, some of the funding could go into grants for disadvantaged students so that they can go to university if they choose to. And some of that money could, could go into early years education. In this country, I think there was a choice to invest in smaller class sizes rather than teachers having masters and degrees. And that was a clear uh, divergence from the European policies. Clearly, early investment in early years is needed. I think the educational attainment gap starts in primary school. In my view, we should focus on literacy and numeracy, because if you don't have those foundations of literacy and numeracy in your primary school and early years of secondary school, not only you're not going to get the CSEs you deserve and the A-levels you deserve, but the foundations of thinking, the foundations of problem solving, the foundations of having excellence in the work you do, whether you're a plumber, electrician or an accountant, whatever you are, those foundations of literacy and numeracy will do you good. And I think we need to invest more in that. At the same time, how would you change the apprenticeship system in this country? And how does that relate back to the secondary uh, sort of sixth form experience? How do you restructure the education system so you kind of optimize this uh, increase in social mobility that we're talking about? 
I would use the phrase collaboration. For instance, there has been a lot of push and pressure recently on universities to be responsible for the professional outcomes that their students land in. Clearly, not all that burden should be put on universities because others are supposed to be collaborating with the education sector in order to together deliver on those outcomes for students. And the work experiences, the connections, the mentoring programs, we need industry to collaborate and they wish to collaborate. I know because I've got 925 mentors from 95 big companies joined migrant leaders to do exactly that. They want to do it. So we need to do more of that. Uh, and it needs to be industrial. It shouldn't really take someone like me after 25 years in industry to go into the charity sector, give up her job, because that was the only way I could make migrant leaders what it deserves to be. This should be done in a systematic way, part of government policy, to boost collaboration between the charity sector, between industry and education. Imagine, for example, if the quality of career advice was better in the schools. You need people like me and many others who I know to come into thousands of the schools regularly and just tell their five-minute stories about how they got the career they did. Imagine just that single intervention, what it would do. We're not collaborating enough. What other solutions do you believe would work better to fix such a systemic problem beyond what we've discussed? Given that in any economy there are lack of resources, decisions have to be made. It's hard being, being the government. It's hard being a university leader. It's hard being a leader of industry or a teacher. These are all difficult jobs and decisions have to be made. So with that in mind, I would say we need to look at the problem. We need to keep looking at the problem and the root causes, the problem and the root causes, because that's where the solution is. And that's where we've got to divert our efforts. And in coming up with solutions or policy changes, keep bringing an element of collaboration across sectors, because that's when the benefit multiplies exponentially. Yes, uh, to reiterate, thank you, Ellen, for that interview. Um, it really was a fantastic interview and one of the most insightful, nuanced, um, yet technical interviews we've had so far. So uh, once again, thank you to Ellen for that. Um, Ellen was highlighting where she thinks all the issues are, and it's, you know, unlike, um, you know, some... Uh, various like policy making kind of views going the issues here the issues here we can't do this we can do this she very much approaches it in a, in a way going there are problems all the way across it it goes from an individual level to a social level to a structural level she was saying that it's unfair to say universities are responsible for the career prospects of their students a, a statement which i'm i'm sure we can all agree with because there's also the fact that once we have our degree we're responsible somewhat for putting ourselves into uh, the labour market, finding our way through. Um, yet at the same time, she's saying that a lot of those prospects are brought upon by the fact that social capital is so unfairly distributed across society. I mean, the, the, the statistics she was saying about um, how immigrant people uh, in this country have twice the proportion of degrees, yet half the proportion of postgraduate prospects, I believe it was, or even an employment rate, is outrageous. Quite frankly, it's a, it's, a, it's a statistic you would never expect to hear and quite evident of a systemic issue of how it's not really about the fact that universities are the be-all and end-all of, of the social mobility. It's also the fact that there are so many other factors that we must address that goes all the way back into early years as well in order for us to tackle this problem. No, quite right. And fundamentally, how would her position, say, differ from Vera? 
Vera um, is very much, I think it's a sub, potentially subconscious, and I, I, I hope not to misinterpret Vera's view, but I think it's somewhat of an acceptance of what cannot be changed. And there is an idea, there are some things that can be changed, there are some things which can't be, whether that's for just the way society is, or just because it would be too outrageous of a policy to put any more money, mm. of the taxpayers' money, into solving the problem. Elam is very... And this is considered a pragmatic approach to do that sometimes, I find. You know, mm. for, at least from my own perspective, I see a lot of people sometimes... Um, unwisely or unfairly saying that some problems can't be solved simply because it would just be too radical. Especially on the financial element. Exactly I think, I th I think, I think on, on the cultural element, she was very much aligned to Elam there. But with, with, the, with the financials, it was more, this is the political system in which we're in. There's not much we can do to change that. Meanwhile, From, yeah. Elam... You know, I mean, she's showing this through her own charity work. She's showing that actually we can do something different. Her own mm. charity um, as its own independent organisation, which she said the government should scale up, you yeah. know, do more of that, that work on a, on a, you know, on a governmental level, as I just said. You know, that it is possible. It's about collaborating between the different sectors of society. It's about having that, like she, she really, really... Uh, focus on that collaboration going, we need industry to get involved. We need people to have these opportunities actually offered to them because some people don't even get the opportunity. Quite right. And that is something that we've learned over the over this series, really. You know, I was just I was just saying to Tom, when I first came to university, I was like, right, everyone who got here, it was all a very similar journey. Because of the fact that you have a loan that is supported by the government. It's, it's a debt that you don't necessarily have to pay off if you don't earn enough. Then surely everyone has an equal opportunity to get to university. But what we've learned in this series is that is not necessarily the case. We've learned the fact that there are so many more issues beyond and including financial. So... What we've learned, first of all, with Finley is the fact that loans are intimidating. And also, grants and maintenance loans, they're not necessarily enough for people to be like, right, I can fund myself at university if I have no support from my family. From, from Charlie, it was like, yes, quite right. Similar to what Finley was saying in terms of the cultural element, going, right, well, I'm not seeing my friends go to university. No one is, or a very small proportion are. So, well, I guess I just won't go to university then because there is no view of any other future that is not considering higher, edu higher education. But obviously admitting the fact that higher education should not be put on a pedestal. Moving on to Vera, therefore, going, right, here we are. We have th the money issue. But that's not necessarily something in which we can change. But the cultural element is. So then we're here with, with Elam, who, what we weren't expecting, really does, really does sum it up. Yeah, it's the fact that, you know, she, she said herself in the interview, she went to a comprehensive school. She ran into trouble um, at, at home and she felt the best way out of it was education. There are many stories like this across the country. And this is one, that, one of the arguments I always see that, you know, tuition fees aren't, 
quite the barrier to social mobility. I mean, some people find them intimidating. Some people say they shouldn't be. Whether Mm. or not they do, I don't know. But some people will, no matter what, even if they're from a bad uh, or disadvantaged background, will go, to get out of this, I must pursue academia. And to be fair, we've been told, as uh, Elam said, over the past 20, 30 years, university is how you get out of that. I just think, um, you know, it's it, it's so interesting that from all across the political spectrum, there is a acknowledgement of uh, particularly this cultural problem and what the barriers are. It's just the fact that whether or not it's financial is so much of a different approach. And I think this goes back into also like this whole entire argument we, we, like the other day. Um, in fact, was it today or yesterday? There's been a story come out. Um, where the government are planning to reform the uh, university tuition fee system by not giving out tuition fees to students which didn't pass their GCSEs or A-levels. Speaking on a personal note, and also reflecting upon everything we've learned over all of these interviews, I don't think there's a single person we've spoken to, bearing in mind uh, the diversity in opinion that that we've heard, would think that's a smart idea. I think everyone is uh, that we spoke to, at least, knows the cultural problem. If anything, is one of the uh, the, the strongest issue facing right now. Elam says that as well. You wouldn't go to university without a tuition fees. So it's the fact that the government is trying to solve a problem which we have delved so deeply into that is like it's societal and it's financial. Well, essentially, it's regardless of what you want to study, what you want to eventually do, if you don't have the grades, if you were, um, you know, really struggling at school for whatever reason, and say, I don't know, you want to change that, you want to go into finance and accounting, hypothetically. You wouldn't be able to do that if you either didn't do particularly well at um, GCSE or A-level. So that is just at least from a academic standpoint, an additional barrier to many barriers that already exist, I assume. It frustrates me that we have now learned so much about this system and its flaws and its benefits, really. What's working, what isn't. It's it's the fact that we were talking about, you know, uh, Ellen was saying one of the main parts of her charity is the connections and the social capital. We're looking at Bath and its uh, social mobility statistics. Uh, Joel, you'll pull, you'll pull, you pulled this one well, up. Well put, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, 101st out of 111 in terms of social mobility. Mm. Once you're at Bath Uni, it's got a fantastic career That's service. not the problem. It's got, yeah, but, you know, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. Once you're here, it's fine. Getting here is the barrier. It's like, why are people not doing it? And I... That's something that Ellen discusses, though, isn't it, though? Tom? It is. It is, exactly. And it's about the fact we need to have that collaboration society, get people, not just through universities, apprenticeships, get people also knowing that they have these options, that there is a way out, removing those barriers to what already could be stopping people going there. In my personal opinion, that includes, but is not limited to, tuition fees. We started off this entire process, this entire theme about how the government was trying to rechange how they were trying to do the tuition fee payback system, maybe reduce tuition fees, but lower the threshold. They're not in touch with what people's lives are actually like. People's lives, um, you know, it's the fact that these financial barriers, as we're saying, you know, say when we're talking to Vera and Charlie, the financial barrier, it can be a barrier, but it shouldn't be. It's not set up to be one. 
It shouldn't be too intimidating, even though there are still sometimes some real-world ramifications for that. There isn't even any nuance in this government policy making. It's just the financial, it, you know, the financial matter is fine. Anyone's be able to do that. They're just looking from their own perspective. They're not solving these problems. And even from a connections point of view, that was something that I think came up about five times in our interview today with Ellen. It was that is just such an important thing in which she herself is trying to rebalance there. And that is, of course, something in itself that is an inequality. Yes. You, some people have more money from mum, bank of mum and dad than others. That is just something that happens. But also you have a network. You have connections with people in many places. But if you are from a disadvantaged background, your circle is far smaller just because of a matter of fact. Yes. Unfortunately. And what that fundamentally means is that your opportunity circle is also smaller. So whether that is seeing, I don't know, family members, family friends going off to university going, right, this is a p path in which I can consider. If it's not there before your very eyes as a, even a possibility or even as, a, as an opportunity, it's, it's not like it's... You don't, you don't see yourself at university, it's that you don't even recognise that as a possibility. And when that already is the case, and you'll then start trying to stop even funding people who don't get their GCSEs or A-levels, and uh, Joel, were you the person that you were now when you were 16? I certainly wasn't. When, no, no, when, no, no, when no. you're sitting on GCSEs, you're, you don't really take it that seriously anyway. Even if you get to university level, university age, and because of the cultural reasons, you still don't believe it's even a possibility. At that age, to suddenly start cutting off that threshold before people even have a chance to reevaluate re before they've matured. If you are of, from a disadvantaged background, you'll most likely go to a state school. And if you struggle with anything, you're going to get far less help than you would in different systems. So what that means is... If you get lower grades, you're, you're a bit stuck. If you Obviously, this is all hypothetical if this actually goes through as a plan. But hypothetically, if you wanted to change, you are then cut off from being able to do that. And I mean, as a levelling up policy, in my opinion, it's not, it's not, it's not, not, the, not quite. the most secure um, or, as you say, in touch. So how do we conclude this episode, Tom? Well, I was, I was about to say, Joel, let's rein this one back in. Yeah, agree. How, you know, because we've both got different opinions on this. Yeah. How would you personally approach this problem? What is it that you've taken most from these interviews? What is it that you would change? What do you think actually is fine at the moment, if anything? I mean, first of all, what I've learned is uh, I, I came to this series thinking this is probably quite black and white. I thought we have Finley and Charlie who have different points of view and they probably represent the two different sides. How wrong I was. The issue and perspectives of the particular issue is so complex, first of all. So finding a solution to that problem is not one step at all. No. But I, th I think what's most important is a culture of motivation and incentivization. It, obviously, that isn't a a manifested policy, but it's something that I think is incredibly important, and and it's something that really 
came through on Elam and Vera's interviews, which was seeing things as possibilities. It's psychological when, whether or not you can see yourself in five, ten years on different career paths, doing different things to what your parents did. And if you're not encouraged, if you don't even appreciate your own value, your own worth and your own capabilities... If the finances aren't a problem, the culture and the psychological issue is probably even more so. Quite right. And this for me, you know, going back to the social capital part, how oftentimes when you're more advantaged, you get given that. It doesn't just go down to social capital. It's the fact that we said this in a previous episode. Me and you, we both went to state school. Mm. But we're both at this university, which is so poor for social mobility. But that's because we already grew up in such a lucky background. And it was the birth lottery, right? Mm. You know, a big house, you know, loving parents, the support you needed from home. These are things which is easy to take take for granted. But, you know, Vera would know this as well. She's on the committee for preventing childhood trauma. These are things which, unfortunately, throughout society are, they're not quite so permeated as, as we would want. Mm. When, when Charlie and Vera, when they were talking about the fairness of the tuition fee system, I actually understand that. I really do. I, I, I completely get where that's coming from. And I think it's got some validity to it because why do people who didn't go to university, who've done well for themselves, why should they pay for tuition fees? I get it. It's just for me, and I've reevaluated this because it's not just about the tuition fees. Like you said, there's so many different aspects. The overarching macro restructuring that I, that I would aim for, and like you said, this motivation, there are people who we went to the same school with who had completely different outlooks on life, who didn't think that what we thought was possible was, because we were told, you know, you can do whatever you want, you're talented, we love you. People don't get that everywhere. It's just, it's, it's unfortunately cruel, and I'm not of the opinion that, we, that that's something that can't be changed. With this collaboration that Ellen was talking about through industry, through schools, from the early ages, this extra funding and somewhat more of a, even though it's analytical approach, it actually, in my opinion, is a warmer approach of trying to tackle the problems of society to lift us all up, but also just for the sake of our own welfare and the sake of the, of the happiness of all Britons is something which is, in my opinion, vital. And if there are any things, like, say, Elam said that tuition fees would have stopped her from going to university, that's where we should start. But that's only where we start. Interesting. Well, Tom and I have most certainly learned something along the way, and we really hope that you have too, because it's been an absolute privilege um, speaking to such knowledgeable and really interesting guests. So it's, it's been a pleasure. And thank you, Tom. And thank you, John. Oh, you're too charming. We believe this is most probably the end of this series. Uh, Yes, I think what we're going to start planning on now is a different theme. Uh, If anyone is out there listening right now, whether on Spotify or live on the radio, please give us a uh, message in the DMs at the BS Opinion. Uh, no, No caps, no spaces. Tell us what you want to hear from us next. And if you want to be on the show, if you want to discuss an issue which we're going to be talking about, we'll be putting out a call. Um, and also, just let us know. We want you on. We want to hear the Bath Student Opinion. Quite right. Thank you very much for listening to the Bath Student Opinion. Good evening. We don't
Yeah.